0: Life Audio. Hey, welcome back to God's Love for the Unlovable. I'm Dr. Bill Sidner with Gospel App Ministries. We're continuing our series, God's Love for the Unlovable. Listen, what happens when God's love for the unlovable, the unloved and the unlovely, and that's all of us on any given day, if we were just a little bit honest. What happens if it bumps into those who are clearly not, or at least they're not feeling lovable, or maybe they're feeling irrelevant? And that's going to be our Christmas theme. So Merry Christmas. We're focused on characters or entities in the account of Jesus' birth. So there'll be the righteous priest, Zechariah, but he's feeling irrelevant. There's the enigmatic Messiah watcher, Simeon, and the mysterious Magi. And today's show, I'm going to be... A bit controversial, I think. Maybe a lot. So what happens when God's love bumps into the unlovable temple of Herod? You know, temples can't feel love, of course. So I'm going to suggest that it has become largely irrelevant in the story of God and his kingdom. And that's going to surprise or even be offensive to so many Christians. But hang in there with me. Let me explain. So let's have some holiday fun. Welcome to God's love for the unlovable We're going to get started after a quick word from our sponsors. So irrelevant, not connected with or relevant to something, having no bearing or connection with the subject at issue, not integral to the important matters swirling around them who don't make any difference anymore. They're bench sitters. If a rock star or a social media influencer becomes irrelevant, it means people aren't relating or listening to his or her music or advice. It isn't part of what people are thinking or talking about. They're unnoticed. They're not making any difference. They're doing a lot of things, but nobody notices. Some synonyms for irrelevant, extraneous, immaterial, inconsequential, insignificant, pointless, trivial, unimportant. So I'm going to suggest that... By the first century CE, the Jerusalem temple had become, in God's eyes, irrelevant. Yeah, I know. Stay with me. How do you evaluate the relevancy of a temple of Yahweh? Well, I'm going to look at three ways of measurement. One is righteousness. Two is the presence of God. And three is its role as a harbinger of justice and consolation. So righteousness. Craig Evans has a very interesting paper jesus 's Action in the Temple and Evidence of Corruption in First Century temple and here's some of the things that he points out during the time of Jesus, the high priesthood of Jerusalem Temple was dominated by four corrupt families there 's Boethus, Annas, Fabi, and Kamath. each are political appointees of Herod or his successors. So this group of very powerful, wealthy elites acted much like modern crime lords. I mean, at the time of Jesus' birth, the family of Boethus was dominant. Later, Annas extended his family's hold over control of the temple like a modern mob boss for 35 years. I love how Wikipedia describes mafia mob bosses calls them a crime boss, also known as a crime lord, mafia don, mob boss, kingpin, or godfather. Might as well add high priest is a person in charge of the criminal organization. A crime boss typically has absolute or nearly absolute control over the other members of the organization and is often greatly feared or respected for their cunning strategy and or ruthlessness and willingness to take lives to exert their influence and profits from the criminal endeavors in which the organization engages. Yeah, one person said the temple establishment and the Jewish ruling aristocracy were virtually one and the same. Wow. Um, The high priest owed their livelihood to the ongoing favor of the Roman puppet king in Jerusalem. A wide gulf had developed between the Torah and the actions of the actual high priest and their practices in the temple. So think over-the-top surcharges on animal sacrifices, high temple currency exchange rates, a small portion of the priest getting an inappropriate portion of the annual temple tax. I mean, it's, it's a mob. There's evidence that the chief priest would send enforcers to take tithes from lower-ranking priests, beating those who refused to give with the result that some of the poor priests starved to death. Societally, this caused a fundamental conflict in Jewish Palestine between the Jewish ruling groups on the one side and frustrated, helpless, and mistrusting Jewish peasantry on the other side. So per Torah, no priest was to own property, but archaeologists have dug up elaborate, costly mansions of the aristocratic elite high priest, featuring extravagant paved courtyards and private rooms and bathing facilities, elegant furniture, expensive mosaics and frescoes, private mikvah oats, ritual baths. The high priest even had an exclusive ramp to go into the temple so that he would not be made impure by touching other dirty Jews. Well, you can sense the arrogance, the self-righteousness among this elite upper-tier class. So how did these four families manage to, to keep control for so long? And again, think how the godfather used bribery and violence. We know that the high priest Ananias regularly bribed Government officials. The high priest Jesus ben Gamaliel gained the high priesthood through bribery. The historian Josephus himself, he says, was victimized by bribes accepted by the high priest Annas. One source laments Woe is me because of the house of Boethus. Woe is me because of their staves. Woe is me because of the house of Cathros. Woe is me because of their pen. Woe is me because of the house of Annas. Woe is me because of their whispering. Woe is me because of the house of Ishmael ben Fabi. For they are high priests and their sons are treasurers and their son-in-laws supervisors and their servants come and beat us with staves. So staves refer to beatdowns. To keep the lower faithful priests and Levites in lines. Pin refers to orders that could ruin regular priests' reputation and livelihood. Whispering is rumors, right? Uh, these priestly crime families ruled by oppression, violence, threats, lies, rumors, and bribery, right? Mafia. So we're going to look at the faithful priest Zechariah in the next show. He wasn't part of the temple elite, not of any of the four families. He and Elizabeth likely lived in Ein Karim, outside uh, of Jerusalem, outside of the immediate realm of the temple families. But he unfortunately had to serve them during the reign of the violent and corrupt family of Boethus. So how difficult was it for him to get up and go to work? Perhaps he was robbed of rightful Tithes and offerings that just had to deal with it, perhaps he was beaten to stay quiet. I mean no judgment all i 'm saying is that it would have been frustrating for a man who wanted to obey Torah and serve God, and maybe this is why he never was chosen by lot for the important service of the altar of incense maybe we 're going to say more next show. One ancient source wrote this most likely, referring to the ruling priesthood elites of the first century temple then 'll rule destructive and godless men who. "...represent themselves as being righteous, but they will be deceitful men, pleasing only themselves, false in every way imaginable, such as loving feast at any hour of the day, devouring, gluttonous. But really, they consume the goods of the poor, saying their acts are according to justice. Well, in fact, they are simply exterminators, deceitfully seeking to conceal themselves so that they will not be known as completely godless because of their criminal deeds." They, with hand and mind, touch impure things, yet their mouth will speak enormous things, and they will even say, do not touch me, lest you pollute me in the position I occupy. Whew. So, was the temple irrelevant? Well, this is probably a good enough time to take a break for our sponsors. We'll be right back. Well, let's go on. Second measurement of the relevancy of the temple was the presence of God. Uh, Right? His favor there. I can't help but believe that Zech and the other faithful priests would have known that the Holy of Holies was barren, empty, a tragic vacuum. God's presence did not return with the people from exile, you know, a half a millennia before. Yet year after year, decade after decade, century after century, the faithful priests like Zech, they rolled up their sleeves, they washed their hands, and they appeared for duty twice a year to do their thing, instructed by law and regulation." On the Day of Atonement, they were taught to service the empty space where the Ark of the Covenant should be as if it were still there. So it's my guess that the average Joe and Mary on the streets weren't aware of the absence of the presence of God. I can imagine that the elite families, right, the crime families would be afraid that if that info got out, it might affect their wealth, their power, right, and maybe crush the the already beaten up hope of the average Jew, I mean, cause a revolt from Rome. You know, if they were to find out that God's presence wasn't with them, whew, that wouldn't be a good day for the families. So Zech and the rest of the 18,000 regular priests did their thing for centuries, knowing that they worked in front of an empty, abandoned shell. They were singing and dancing and worshiping in front of an empty void. Uh, so let me ask again, was the temple irrelevant? The third measurement of the temple's relevancy is this. Was it fulfilling its role as a place where justice and consolation were to be experienced? Uh, let me explain, because you might not be familiar with this, right? might even be surprised. The temple, right, we most often emphasize its role as a reconciler of people to God and God to the people, vertical justice for sins. But Solomon, right, a pretty smart guy, And at the grand celebration of the completion of the second temple, he emphasized its role to keep and maintain peace and unity and equality within Israel, a horizontal justice as well. So imagine you were a Jew in that period. You came to the temple because somebody hurt you, somebody wounded you. There was an injustice, an unfairness, an act of racism, prejudice, bullying, abandonment, uh, betrayal, abuse, uh, or lies, whispering, right, that hurt you badly. And it has rewired your brain, maybe it was chronic, and now you're you're avoiding relationships, You're, you're silent, or you're seeking revenge, you're angry. And you've tried to move on, you've tried to choose to forgive like we do today, but the injustice lingers and haunts you over and over. So what if there was a place that you could go to, I'm not talking counseling, but a place where you could actually find judicial relief, right? That thing that would make your brain fully say, I'm good now. I'm no longer a victim. I don't feel that way. I no longer require anything of anybody. In fact, I just want to dance. Heaven's going to be that for all Christians. Uh, There will be no longer a need for justice or repentance or reparation or apologies because somehow all of that's going to be taken care of. We're going to be made whole. So there's going to be no more tears, only rejoicing. So defendants and plaintiffs alike dancing because Jesus has taken care of the injustices. No more tears, right? It's going to be an amazing holy operation that's going to change everything, relationally, identity-wise. So even chronically traumatized victims will be made whole to the point that they will agree. Perfect consolation from the compassionate presence of God, God's face shining upon all of us. Solomon understood that the temple was supposed to be the foretaste of that on earth right now, today. So yeah, it was a place of worship and redemption, vertical celebration. But it was also an earthly manifestation of the final heavenly courtroom. A massive blessing for people who hurt each other on a regular basis. And not just for Jews, Solomon will point out, but for all of the nations who come to look to it for justice and consolation and shalom. So here's King Solomon. Give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. That's First Kings 8.28. We do an entire lesson on this in our small group Bible study on forgiveness. We messed up. You can check it out at the website, gospel or you can find it on right now media as well. So what is supposed to happen at Herod's temple? Solomon requests that when there are, are official trials for horizontal crimes held in the temple, and there should be, God is to interpose on two fronts. When a man wrongs his neighbor and is required to take an oath, and he comes and swears the oath before your altar in the temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty and bringing down on his head what he has done. Declare the innocent not guilty, and so establish his innocence. That's First Kings eight thirty one to 32. So isn't this fascinating? We moderns would never have such a trial in our church buildings, would we? I mean, isn't church about worship and communion and fellowship and, and children's ministry? I mean, that would just scare some people away, right? Uh, maybe not victims. Right? But in the Holy Temple of God in Jerusalem, there were to be regular trials, judicial proceedings that considered such things as, as losses of goats or land or reputation or security or broken contracts, uh, murder. Isn't that fascinating? So back to that injustice or chronic injustice that you've suffered. You're bringing it to the temple. You make an appointment with the temple priest for your case to be heard before God's face. They, as your representative, your voice, they present charges, present all of the evidence against your perpetrator. Then your purpose heard from. No need for him to come and lie, right, to enter a not guilty plea. God knows exactly what happened and what they are thinking too. Right? You get the scene then Solomon boldly requests that the judge himself, God, not just sit back passively, but intervene. Yeah, I love this. God, he says, hear both cases, all of the testimony, all of the evidence, and then do something. Judge your servants. <laughs> so what does Solomon have in mind? God condemn the guilty. I mean, literally, he says, wicked the wicked. And humanly speaking, it's difficult to discern who is lying and who is telling the truth. So God make it obvious. I remember Second Chronicles twenty six nineteen when King Uzziah disobeyed God and he was struck with leprosy. There we go. He's wickeding the wicked. Or for that matter, Miriam in Numbers 12, 10. It's pretty clear. And so Solomon requests that God makes it clear to everyone in the courtroom who's guilty, who's lying. Would that be head clearing? If God himself somehow makes your offender observably guilty right, causes welts to break up all over his or her face or did the Pinocchio thing with the nose, right, and everybody looks at it, wow, how would that feel? Wouldn't you feel justified? Yeah, and there's more. He asked that God bring down on the head of the guilty party what he or she has done. See, I'm suggesting that this is a euphemism for God making the guilty feel all of the consequences, all the pain, the anguish, the losses of the crime, Right? All the shame, all of the guilt that the victim has felt. God, convict him to the bone. God, bring down upon his head what he or she has done. God, declare the guilty guilty. Cause the merited punishment to fall upon him or her. Right there. Bring shame and guilt to bear upon the one who did that to me. Cause them to see, to deeply feel what they did to me and how wrong it was. Make them feel what I feel and what you feel, God. Man, that's justice in the temple. Can you imagine how that would have looked if the one who hurt you so much got struck with heavenly guilt and godly sorrow, shoved it down his or her throat, right? And they fell to their knees in deep repentance and acknowledgement of what they did publicly. How would that have changed the tenor of the trial? How would that have made you feel? Boy, you would certainly believe again that someone big has your back. Solomon makes a similar outlandish prayer on behalf of the plaintiff, right? The victim. God righteous the righteous is what he says literally. God publicly vindicate them. Make it clear to them. Make everyone see that they're innocent. Isn't that great? They're the plaintiff here, right? But don't stop there. God established their innocence. Interesting phrase. See, I'm going to suggest that this is the opposite of the actions that God took to convict the defendant. God make the defendant feel vindicated, Feel whole, feel honored, feel like a person who should be treated with honor. If they were raped, God, make them feel clean and pure again, a person of honor again. If they were slandered, give them back their name. If they were robbed, fill their cup with some dynamic equivalence. God, you make people's names great. So now, God, put on the wronged party his rightness and give them your ah factor. Look, remember, plaintiff, this does not negate the law's requirement that the guilty pay you back for what they did, what they took from you as evaluated by the human court. The Leviticus case law often requires that the defendant pay back loss plus a fine. No, God is asking God for more than this. He asked God to do it on the behalf of the victim, what only God can do. No, Solomon is asking God for even more than this. He's asked God to do on, on the behalf of the victim what only God can do and beginning right now, not just waiting for heaven. God, convict the heart of the guilty defendant, give them a deep alien godly sorrow, make the victim feel vindicated, and make them feel right again. Whew! A relevant Herodian temple was supposed to be that place. But there's little evidence that any of that was going on in Herod's time, in Jesus' time, uh, right, among the priestly crime families. I mean, if so, we would have seen trials for the high priest crime families in the temple but we didn't. We might even expect to see King Herod himself brought before God for his assassination of his sons and genocide of the young boys under two years old. Ah, Even the Romans would have been subpoenaed for their day in court for all of the injustices. This was the high calling of God's temple. Listen to the high rhetoric of Isaiah 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Right? Think a court, a courtroom. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, so that we will walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge. There it is. Between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. So think Parthians and Romans and Egyptians and Idumeans and Nabataeans. And then they're going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up swords against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. O come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord, Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. Boy, this is really poignant now. I mean, as, as I'm preparing this, Israel is, is uh, responding to Gaza's attack. Um, yeah, the, the temple. Did any of that happen? No, it seems like God's courtroom in Jesus' day was closed for business. Irrelevant. So do we agree that the second temple during the lifetime of Jesus was not what what it was designed to be? In so many ways, it was corrupt. It was an instrument of abuse and oppression, all in the name of Yahweh, by the way. That's horrible. It's at least irrelevant. And that's being kind. You know, I've got more evidence. I could call Jesus as an eyewitness for the prosecution. We're told on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Ah, Mark eleven fifteen to 17. But and this is important. The people of God were not left without a temple. There was a manifestation of the temple of God, a new one, right? The temple of God, the same one that Solomon prayed over. Remember I said that the presence of God wasn't in the Holy of Holies anymore in the temple? But we do see it. The presence of God was dying on the cross, remember? When the curtains of the Holy of Holies was torn in two. Well, why did that happen? I'm going to suggest because first, first and foremost, now everybody can see uh, through the cover up, that the presence of God hasn't been there in, in five centuries. The presence of God was not even in the temple, this powerful Shekinah glory. It was on the cross outside the city walls. Now, follow me. The final offering for the sins of humanity, prophesied through the Old Testament, was not presented at the altar of Herod's now irrelevant temple. No, nope. It was offered on the altar that was the cross. Jesus was that atonement offering, again, not offered within the existing temple complex because it had become irrelevant. When Jesus walked and spoke about the kingdom of God throughout the land, now we can see that it was a new manifestation of the temple of God. No longer irrelevant or subjected to corruption of elite crime families. Jesus, as the new temple, was going out, pursuing the broken, the lame, the demoniac, the rejected, the unclean, the Jews and Gentiles, men and women equally, those who needed justice. And no more restrictions, no requirements of being circumcised or ritually clean. The door of the temple and access to God and the face of God, the judge no longer restricted. It was a mobile temple. And as for any and all who would come, there in the The judicial, compassionate gaze of Jesus, those who suffered from oppression and injustice, could and did find justice and consolation and salvation. So, are you with me? Was the temple relevant at all? Yeah, of course it was. It has always pointed to the final temple, Jesus. In truth told, this has always been the plan. And Emmanuel, God with us, also means the temple with us, his arms open to embrace the unlovable, the unloved, and the unlovely. So what happens when the love of God for the unlovable bumps into the irrelevant, oppressive temple? The temple's exposed, retired, and replaced by a new model that actually loves the unlovable, that gives justice to those treated with injustice. Yeah, the Christmas story. In the Christmas story, the Jerusalem temple is at least irrelevant, certainly corrupt, but it has finally been replaced and unaware by a new and greater temple. So as we contemplate Advent and our celebrations of the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of God uh, within humanity, and the resurrection of a new temple, where all who are victims can find consolation at last before the face of God, so reimagine the Christmas story again through the eyes of Jesus, the new temple of God. And then come and bring your injustices and unresolved hurts to the judge there, Jesus. You know, one thing that I want to do for the Advent portion of God's Love for the Unlovable series is to suggest a Christmas song each each week so you can ponder. Uh, Google a YouTube version of Christy Knuckles waiting here for you. I think this is appropriate. Put on earphones. Just turn it up. If you want some more fun, as you're listening, imagine being in the temple courts during the days of Jesus. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, but where do you go? You're hurt. You feel victimized, oppressed. You think that no one has your back. You're feeling alone in the universe and unlovable, and you wonder about God. God doesn't feel near. So, and you've heard about this new teacher, Jesus, and that he's coming for the Passover to the temple. So you hold up your empty hands, your shredded soul, and you sing this song. Here are some of the lyrics. If faith can move the mountains, let the mountains move. We come with expectation, waiting here for you. Right? Got that image? I'm waiting here for you. You're the Lord of all creation, and still you know my heart. The author of salvation, you've loved us from the start. Waiting here for you with our hands lifted high in praise. And it's you we adore, singing Alleluia. You are everything you promised. Your faithfulness is true, and we're desperate for your presence. All we need is you. Waiting here for you. Well, you get it, right? So just enjoy. In the next show, we're gonna continue and look at the faithful priest Zechariah. So, what is he to do? He likely feels as irrelevant as the temple is. So, what will happen when the love of God bumps into this irrelevant priest? I have a new book soon to be published about long-overlooked and underappreciated women in the Old Testament. We're calling it "Danced Daughters of the Most High. If you're enjoying this series, particularly if you're a woman, uh, you're going to love this book. These are the little-known stories of great female giants in the Old Testament. You're going to be encouraged. Uh, if you want to know when it's going to get published, drop me a line, bill at gospel Also, let me know what you think about this show. I would really appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Take heart, child of God.